Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. As is our custom, we're going to read the whole chapter and then we'll go back and start digging into the details. It is my intention to finish Second Thessalonians this morning. We'll see how that goes. And then starting next week, we will be doing some topical messages initially about the Trinity which was George's request. And after that, we're going to talk about the church as a local community and the church universally. Why does the church exist? What's expected of the church? We're going to talk about that for a few weeks. Before we go on to the next book in the Bible, which at this point I believe is going to be the Gospel of Luke, but if you have an alternative opinion, feel free to share that with me. And then I will ignore you, and we'll do Luke anyway. So, Second Thessalonians, chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly 
and be glorified, just as it did also with you. And that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, We kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, Neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Now, as for you, brethren, Do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you Peace in every circumstance, and the Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And thus ends Second Thessalonians. Paul has written two letters to this church at Thessalonica. In both letters, he has tried to clear up their eschatological confusion and then along the way has also addressed problems within the church. Their problems apparently are not as bad as the Corinthian church, but it does me a great deal of good when I read that even these churches that were planted by Paul, the very first churches at the very beginning after Pentecost as Gentiles were coming to faith, these early churches also had trouble and problems and confusion. That makes me feel good because every church is peopled by sinners and sinners become egocentric self-willed, and confused. And so I'm happy to know that at no point did Paul say, you know what, you guys have acted up so much that you're no longer a church. You can't be called a church because you're just not right. Instead, he says, you're a church that needs to be instructed. You're a church that needs to be brought along in the faith. You just need greater understanding. And where are we going to get that greater understanding. Well, that's right in verse 1 of chapter 3. You know, Paul had gone through a tremendous amount of difficulty. He'd gone through beatings and shipwrecks. He'd gone through being hungry. He'd been imprisoned. He took beatings. 
And if any of us had endured all of that, when we wrote to the church and asked the church to pray for us, we'd start out with, pray that we have the ability to endure and that people quit hitting us. That would be our first primary thought. That's not Paul's first primary thought. He does bring it up, but first and foremost, he wants the word of God to have free reign to spread, to continue to save people, to continue to change lives, to continue to be preached over and over again. That's his primary interest. And that is because his understanding of his relationship with Christ is that Christ is, stop me when this is too obvious, Christ is Lord in everything that that means. He is Lord. He is master. He is kurios. And Paul repeatedly refers to himself as a bondservant of Christ. Doulos, a slave of Christ. Therefore, he doesn't see himself as having rights, as if he can go and insist that God give him things or take care of him. Instead, he sees that the primary interest of the Father is the glorification of the Son, which is accomplished through the word that he has so graciously given us. And therefore, Paul wants that word to be advanced. And that's the beginning of his prayer and the prayer that he wants the church at Thessalonica to pray. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified. As I mentioned last week, the way that the word of God is glorified is mentioned in that very last phrase of verse 1, where it says, just as it did also with you. In both of these letters, Paul has extolled the virtues of the Thessalonians because they heard the gospel, embraced the gospel, were changed by the gospel, and were willing to advance that gospel in the hope that more people would be saved by the grace of Christ that is described in that gospel. And so when people come to faith, when people hear the word and understand the word and are changed by the word, that is how the word is glorified. The word does what it's meant to do. And when it accomplishes what God sent it to accomplish, God, who is in the enterprise of glorifying himself, glorifies his own word by sending his word to save people. For anybody in the room right now who considers themselves a saved person, how did that happen? Did you wake up one day, stare into your navel and say, hey, I probably ought to get saved? That's not the way it works. At some point, you encountered, you came across the word of God. Whether it was read, whether it was read to you, whether you found the Bible in a drawer in a hotel somewhere and started reading it. However the word got to you, whether it was through a preacher, whether it was through the internet, whether it was through going to church and hearing the word of God proclaimed, the word of God is the means by which God converts people. And so Paul's primary interest is that the word of God would grow rapidly, would spread wildly, and that it would be glorified in the salvation of people. And then, verse 2, and that we might be delivered from perverse and evil men, because not everybody has faith. That's a reality. Not everybody has faith. So how is it that some people have faith and some people don't? Well, that's up to God again. It is God who determines who it is that he is going to save, who it is that he has chosen before the foundation of the world, who it is that he is going to send his gospel to, and who it is that he is going to change from within and take out their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. And that isn't something that everybody encounters. Even Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, said to God that he was praying for those people that God had given him and that he was not praying for the whole world. He prayed for those particular people. 
And he also referred to the Holy Spirit, who he called the Spirit of Truth, who the world cannot receive. So the words of Jesus, who would be an authority on the topic, is that the world neither has faith nor receives the Holy Spirit, nor did he pray for them. And as a consequence of that, they are worldlings. They are the people of this world and of this flesh. As a consequence, Paul calls them perverse people, evil people. And why is it that they are perverse and evil? Because they don't know the things of God. They don't care about the things of God. They hate the things of God. That was true in Paul's day. It's just as true today. There are plenty of folks out there in the world speaking and writing and pontificating about how much they just hate Christ and hate the Bible. Most of them are working today in academia. <laughs> and they're telling folks that the Bible is a bunch of old wives' tales and a bunch of myths and that you can't believe it, proving that they've never really come to encounter the Word of God in any sort of saving fashion. So Paul says, I pray that the word of the Lord is going to spread rapidly and that it'll be glorified the same way also that it was with you. And that we, I think he's speaking specifically of he and Timothy and Silas as they were traveling together. They had been chased from city to city and they had been persecuted by evil, corrupt perverse men. So pray that we'll be delivered from these perverse and evil men because not everybody has faith. But on the other hand, verse 3, the Lord himself, Christ, is faithful. And he will strengthen and protect you from, the word in the Greek there is poneros, it means the evil one. The NASB properly translates it, not just as evil, but as the evil one. So what does that tell you about the perverse and evil men who run contrary to the gospel in this world? It tells you that they are driven by Satan himself. They are driven by Poneros. And so Paul goes beyond just deliver us from flesh and blood. Deliver us from the ego of men who hate the gospel. He goes past that to the very spirit that is driving them, that very embodiment of evil, the Paneros, the evil one, Satan himself. And then this wonderful great news that the Lord, I'm going to emphasize the word, Lord, the master, the all-powerful one, the in-control one, the sovereign one, he is the power that will deliver you from Poneros. You're not going to do it yourself. You're not going to deliver yourself from Satan. Satan's been alive a lot longer than you have. Oh, and he's a tricky something. He'll fool you every chance he gets. And were it not for the power, the strength, and the spirit of God inhabiting you, you'd fall for him every single time. And yet, Paul says, I am confident that the Lord himself is faithful and his faithfulness is demonstrated in the fact that he's going to give you strength. He's going to strengthen you in your faith, in your confidence of the word of God. And as he strengthens you, he's going to protect you from the slings and the arrows and the wildness and the madness of this world. It's such very good news that the Lord, who is faithful, is going to strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Okay, let's see how honest you are. Um, so have you ever woken up one day, taken a good look at yourself in the mirror and said, how could God love somebody like me? Because you're aware of your own deception in your own heart, your own darkness, your own lizard brain, the stupid things that go through your head. You're aware of all that, and you think, how is it that I'm not just going to fall like the whole rest of the world? Well, the answer, again, consistent with all Pauline theology, is that the answer is not in you. The answer is in Christ and in God himself, that the Lord himself 
who is ever faithful is going to strengthen and protect you from the evil one who is the prince of the power of the air, who is the ruler of this domain, this world, and you are going to be protected from him despite yourself because of his faithfulness to you. Wow. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And on top of that, verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Now that word command there is a Greek word, parangelo, which means to transmit a message or to enjoin people, to encourage people, to charge people to do things. He is not saying that his words and the traditions of the church are on par with the commands of God, but you'll notice that Paul did not simply tell the church, this is how you're saved, Christ is your fully sufficient Savior. He also said, and there's responsibility that goes with the fact that Christ himself has saved you. And so I give you directives. And so I give you commands. But then Paul has witnessed and heard from Timothy that the folks in Thessalonica are actually doing the things that Paul has commanded. They are acting like Christian people. They are behaving themselves like Christian people. And then he's going to talk about the opposite of that kind of appropriate Christian behavior in a couple verses. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness, the faithfulness, the unchangingness of Christ himself, because that's the only place where you're going to find any confidence and any hope. If you stare at yourself, you're not going to find anything. Like I said earlier, you can gaze at your navel, and you're not going to find any hope or confidence. Your confidence as a Christian person that you're going to be okay when you stand before the God of ages, the judge of the universe, your confidence comes from the fact that Christ doesn't change. And if he saved you, it's because he always intended to save you. He didn't change. He didn't wait around to see what you were going to be like and then decide to save you. He saved you. He is conforming you. He is changing you into his image. And he does not give up on you, which if you're anything like me is really, really good news. And... I just, sometimes I read these Greek words and I just find them so fascinating. This word direct, which that's a good translation of it, but the actual Greek word has to do with straightening something out. It's like yesterday I had to gather up my garden hose out in the backyard and try to put it in little circles there on the patio, which is impossible. And, and it was all kinked up. And I had to unkink it and unwind it. And okay, that process of straightening out that hose is this Greek word that is translated direct. It means to guide somebody or specifically to clear away any obstacles. Now, notice where Paul put that. May the Lord straighten out and clear away the obstacles in your heart to bring you to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Why would Paul say that? Why would he use that kind of language when describing your heart? It's because your heart is easily enamored with a great many things of this world, things that get in the way of your love of God and Christ. Here, I'll demonstrate it to you. I assume that most of the people in this room believe they're Christians, are Christian people. And yet, every once in a while, you'll find yourself struggling with the things of this world where you think, I don't know, do Christians do this? Should I be doing this? 
I probably shouldn't do this. Yeah, I'm doing this. Yeah. Because the world will get a hold of your heart, will entice you, will bring you into these worldly things, and your heart needs to be straightened out. Your heart needs to get the kinks out of it. And the only way that you're going to come to Christ and really observe who he is in his unchanging steadfastness in the love of God toward you, which in and of itself is way past astounding that God would love you because you know you, you know what you're like, you know how you act, you know your thoughts, and that God would place his everlasting love Determined before the foundation of the world, he would put that love on you in such a saving way that he would determine your eternity so that you're ever going to live in the joy, glory, and splendor of his presence and that he's going to do it all and he's going to do it all for you? Amen. Does that make any sense to you at all? Well, the only way you're going to be able to think about that the only way you're going to be able to be settled in that, the only way you're going to find comfort and peace in the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ is if God himself removes all those encumbrances out of your heart, out of your mind, straightens you out like a hose, takes all the kinks out so that you can then come completely to the realization of the astounding grace of God in what he did for you because of how great his love is for you. I like the fact that he started that. He ended that. And he worked out the kinks in between that. So that you could come to a knowledge of him. And that the world and the evil one and wicked men can't get in the way between you and God. Because God who is all powerful is the one who is giving you both the understanding and he's the one that's drawing you and he is the one who is clearing away the obstacles. That's a really sovereign God who's working completely on your behalf. Can you see why every once in a while you just need to get down on your face and thank him? You just need to praise him for what he has done for you. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, here's that word command again that we've already talked about. We command you, brethren. This gives you some sense of what Paul considers to be commands. We exhort you. We, we teach you. We train you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this isn't something that is different than Christ himself would teach you. But having been taught by Christ, I'm now telling you that you should stay aloof, stay separate from, this is very specific language, pay attention to it, keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the teaching, to the tradition that you have received from us. The fact that Paul uses the word brother is really important. Paul doesn't say, mark everybody in the world who is acting unchristian, because that's a list that would just go on and on and on. Instead, what he's saying is within the church, within the confine of believers, if there is someone who is a brother in Christ and yet leads an undisciplined, unruly life, this Greek word translated unruly, Ataktos, I think is how it's said. It's somehow translated as irregularly when it comes to like moral decisions. They're disorderly. They're undisciplined. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 uses the exact same word. And in the NIV translation, it says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. So that gives you some sense of what he means by unruly. People who are causing trouble within the church. People who are tailbearers, People who are gossips. People who aren't working. He's going to mention them in just a moment. People who are just busy causing trouble. And so he says, mark those kinds of people. 
Yes, they're brethren, which is why later in this same chapter he says, don't treat them as enemies, but admonish them the way you would a brother. Because the reality is within the Christian church, let's see how many of you have had this experience. Within the Christian church, sometimes there's people who you just kind of have to look sideways at and wonder, really, are you a Christian? But you keep showing up. You're still here, you're still in church, you seem to be understanding it, and yet that knowledge that you're attaining is in your head. It just doesn't seem to have affected your heart or your behavior. And so Paul says, in that case, treat them like a brother, don't treat them like an enemy, but make sure that you do correct them. And this is a good introduction to the idea of church discipline, which we will talk about in the weeks to come. Church discipline is never for the purpose of driving people out. It's never for the purpose of saying, well, now we're going to tar and feather you out in the parking lot and openly shame you. The purpose of church discipline is restoration, is to bring people back into the fellowship in a way that is appropriate. And so Paul's instruction is, His command is, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, keep aloof, separate yourself from every brother in the faith who then leads an unruly, undisciplined, idle, disruptive life and then doesn't act, doesn't live according to the teaching, the tradition that you have received from the apostles. So the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine is the basis for the church and for church life. And therefore, as Paul has said repeatedly, there is unity within the church. That unity comes from a unity of thought and doctrine and teaching and faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that we all have in common. But then if there is someone who is acting disruptively, they need to be corrected. And Paul's advice is to put them out for a little while or stay aloof from them, separate yourself from them, don't join in with their behavior, their disruptive behavior, but then treat them as a brother, correct them, admonish them to bring them back into the faith. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Why would Paul even have to say that, by the way? Because it was happening. happening. And it's kind of good to know that even in the early church, these kind of things happened because those kind of things still happen to this very day within the church. And it's good to know that God is still building his church, protecting his church, glorifying himself through his word, and he's doing it through sinful, incapable people. And that he is drawing those kind of people and changing those kind of people and bringing their behavior in league with their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Same word. It's unruly there again. Exact same Greek word. So Paul is saying, when we were with you, we didn't act up. When we were with you, we took care of ourselves. We didn't even eat bread for free. We were so disciplined in our behavior as we were among you that you should use us as an example. And so if you want to know what proper Christian behavior looks like, says Paul, look at me, look at Timothy, look at Silas. We behaved ourselves properly among you. When we were introducing 1 Thessalonians way back when, We talked about the Gentile culture that permeated Thessalonica. And it was a culture of debauchery. 
And it was a culture of many temples to many idols that included temple prostitution and all kinds of debauched behavior. So then those people who live in that kind of culture, who have spent their whole life in that kind of undisciplined behavior, those people then profess Christ. You can see that Paul has a bit of an uphill battle here where he has to say, okay, now that was worldly behavior. That's what you used to be like. But now, if you are indeed the saints of Christ, you should be different than that. The world should be able to look at you and see that you are different than that. And so, conform your behavior according to your profession in Christ. And Paul is fully confident in the Lord concerning them that they are going to do and are doing and will continue doing the commands, the directives, the word of God. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread freely or without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now remember that Paul was only in Thessalonica a matter of weeks before the Jews that were pursuing him from city to city also drove him out of Thessalonica. But while he was there, we know that Paul had the skill to work as a tent maker. And he said, we worked so that we would not be any kind of burden to you. But then in verse 9, he also says, not because we do not have this right over you. Paul knew that he had the right to expect support. This is the same Paul who wrote that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. This is the same Paul who said, let those who have been taught in the word share materially with the one who has taught them. And so Paul recognizes that he has the right to expect that kind of financial and physical support But, as he often did, like he did in Corinth, he would come into cities for short periods of time, and he would support himself while he was there so that nobody could say, well, you know, the only reason Paul is preaching this thing to us is to try to get money out of us. He didn't want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be in any way hampered, to be in any way criticized. And so he made sure that when he went into cities like this, he would work, take care of himself. And the point he made is, even when somebody would give us something to eat, even bread, we paid for it. We weren't a burden to anybody. But we have the right. We have the ability to expect that kind of behavior and support from you. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you might follow our example, that's the reason why he did it. By the way, again, just interesting Greek words. The word there translated model comes from mimos, which means to mimic or to be like something else. The Greek word, if I can say it right, is mimeomai. What does that sound like? Did any of you grow up with mimeographs? Am I the only person old enough here to remember mimeographs? What was a mimeograph? It was an exact duplicate, an exact copy of the original. And so that's where that word comes from in the English language. It was passed down to us from the Greek language. And that's the word that Paul used when he said, the reason that we didn't become a burden to you is so that we could offer ourselves as a mimeograph, as something you could copy so that you would be like us, so that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, this command, this directive. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Apparently, that was happening in Thessalonica. Paul doesn't tell us why that was happening in Thessalonica. Some people have speculated that it was because the early church had such an expectation of Christ coming right back 
that they just stopped working altogether because they thought Christ was going to come get them any day. And let's be honest, you do the same thing. If you knew Christ was coming a month from Thursday, you'd stop working, run up your credit cards, (laughs) because you're leaving. It doesn't matter. You're escaping. And so that may be what it was. But also Paul here is talking about unruly people. And one of the translations of that word for unruly is people who are idle, people who are disruptive because they have nothing better to do. And so that was causing problems within the church. And so Paul lays down the law and says, if a man doesn't work, well, then he doesn't eat because he's not doing anything to produce food, and yet if he's still eating, he's eating as a burden to other people. He's eating other people's food. Sometimes I think we, 21st century Gentile Christian people, we don't know the importance of food. The Bible says a lot about food, but we live in a society where we can be driving down the road and feel a mite peckish. And just, you know, immediately pull into a driveway somewhere, talk to a box, and then pull forward, and someone hands us a hamburger or a taco. Food is so readily available to us that we don't understand the first century mindset. When Paul was writing this, when people got up every day, job one was find food. Because you didn't have refrigerators. You didn't have ways to keep food fresh. They would salt it sometimes in order to keep it for a day or two. But meat would spoil very quickly. Every day, job one, find food. And so Paul could say here, if there's somebody in your midst who's eating every day but not working, not producing anything, not creating the food he's eating, then he is becoming a burden to the church. And if he's got that kind of free time, then this is what he's going to do. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading, there's that word again, an undisciplined life, an unruly life. And what does that look like? They do no work at all, and they're acting like busybodies. They got nothing better to do. They're going around telling tales. They're going around gossiping. They're causing dissension within the body. Did you hear what so and so said? Did you hear what so and so did? Hey, I saw somebody the other day who claims to be a Christian who was doing this and that. Just busy being busybodies and stirring up dissension within the church. Now, such persons we command. And exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do we give you a directive, but we exhort you by Christ himself. Since Christ is the head of his own church, since he's the one who is busy building his own church, these people are becoming a detriment to Christ's own church. Therefore, we exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you go to work. And it's interesting that Paul says, and go to work quietly because they're busy bodies they're busy out there telling tales so two things go to work and just go to work quietly work with your own hands eat your own food so work in a quiet fashion and eat your own bread but on the other hand These busybodies, these people who haven't been working, these people who are eating off other people's food, the people who gave them that food may have done it out of genuine Christian kindness, may have done it out of true, genuine grace. And so Paul then refers to those folks and says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Keep doing the good. Keep doing the good. Have you ever had the sense where you were helping somebody out. You're doing good, you're doing good, and it seems like they just don't appreciate it. Isn't that a great feeling? When you can't even get a thank you from somebody, and you're busy taking care of them. Well, it's real easy under those circumstances to start feeling like, what's the point of the good I'm doing? What's the point of my charity? What's the point of my helping these people out? 
Well, the point, according to Paul here, is that you're doing it for Christ's sake. You're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore it has value. God sees it. God recognizes it, whether other people get it or not. And therefore, don't grow weary in it. Keep doing good. That is part of what it is to be Christian. That is part of what it is that separates us from the whole rest of the evil, unruly world, is that we are people who actually do look for opportunity to do good to people and don't grow weary in the doing. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take special note of that man and do not associate with him. The same idea as earlier when he said, stay aloof from every brother who leads an unruly, undisciplined life, who doesn't live according to the teaching, the tradition that you've received from the apostles. If anyone does not obey the instruction that comes from the apostles, then note them, mark them, be aware of them and don't associate with them. Because by associating with them, you're practically giving tacit approval to them. If they are acting up, acting unchristian, causing trouble within the church, and then every time you see them, you go, hey, buddy, how you doing? Great to see you. Big hug. Love you. Mean it. Well, then they're never going to be corrected in that behavior because you're approving of that behavior. So Paul very wisely says... If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, then mark them. Take note of that man. Do not associate with him so that they may be put to shame, is the NASB rendering of it. What it means is to put them out of the community so that they recognize that they were not appropriate within the community. This is church discipline for the purpose of restoration, Because look at the very next verse. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy. You're still supposed to be gracious and kind to him. But you're also supposed to let him know that his behavior is not appropriate within a church or Christian context. So mark that man. Don't associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. And boy, that's a tough one sometimes. Sometimes it's appropriate to actually admonish somebody because they're a brother. Here, I'll put it this way. Uh, My son is in the back there. I used to have to really discipline my son. When he was young, sometimes I really needed to correct that boy. The same way my father used to really correct me. I used to correct my son, but I would always tell him repeatedly, I'm not doing this because you're my enemy. I'm not doing that because I hate you. I'm doing that because I love you. Okay, so so the Chessmans have a passel of boys. Every once in a while, Kenneth, do you need to correct them? Yeah. (laughs) Every once in a while. Yeah. I suspect that there's always at least one that needs some correcting. Yeah. So you spend a, a portion of your life correcting these young boys. Do you do that because you hate them? No, you do that because you love them, because they're yours because you want to build an appropriate family. Same thing within the church. We don't exhort people because we're angry and hate them. We exhort people, talk to those people about their behavior, talk to those people about the way that they're being busybodies or stirring up the church or causing divisions, causing schisms within the church. Every once in a while, you got to sit down with people and say, you know, this isn't working. And we're not doing it, as Paul said, because they're an enemy. We're doing it because we genuinely love them, and we're trying to restore them back into the community of faith, back into the church. And that is the reason why proper exhortation 
and correction exists within the church for the peace and the welfare of the whole church. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And now he's wrapping up the letter. This is his closing salutation here. Now may the Lord of peace. So frequently, Paul refers to Christ as the Christ of grace, or we admonish you by the grace of our Lord. I think it is so interesting after talking about this division within the church, after talking about people who are unruly, people who are creating this kind of disorderly conduct within the church, undisciplined people, that he refers to the God, he refers to the Christ of the Christian church as the Lord of peace. That word peace means the ceasing, the stopping of againstness. And so he's been taking all this time to describe this kind of againstness that happens in the church and talks about how we should admonish these people to bring them back into the continuity and the faith of the church. And then because it is a church that belongs to Jesus Christ, he identifies Christ as the Christ of peace. Because that is ultimately what we're called to. Not only within the church framework are we called to be at peace with each other. But also we are called to be at peace with God. And then through our peace with God to be at peace with men. Which is why Paul refers to a kind of peace that passes understanding. Okay, can we kind of all agree that the world is, uh, I often say it's stupid. I can't think of a better word. The world right now falls under the category of unruly, undisciplined, just crazy. Okay, and yet, as we are living here in this crazy, undisciplined world, we're not panicked. Why is that? Because the world seems very panicked right now. Everybody's wringing their hands. World War III could break out any day. And boy, you get talking politics and people just completely unravel these days. There's very little unity of thought. And there's a tremendous amount of arguing and discussion going on. And yet we are confident that whatever happens, God is going to take care of us, that Christ is steadfast, that God, whoever loved us, is going to protect us in the midst of an absolutely unruly, undisciplined world. Where does that come from? The world can't comprehend it. That's why Paul calls it that peace that passes understanding. People can't figure out why it is that we walk through this stupid world and we're fine, we're good, we're confident, we're looking forward because we know this world is not our home, because we know that we're going to leave this world and we're going to go be with God forever where there's no more death and no more sickness and God's going to wipe away every tear and that's what we're looking forward to and that brings about a confidence in us, a peace within us that the world just doesn't get. And where does that come from? The Lord of peace. He's the one in whom we have lasting peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Okay, I'm going to name a name here. I don't know if it'll get to the internet. I don't know how many of you have been following along with Todd's cancer in his spine and his extended hospitalizations and the phenomenal pain that he's been living with. And he has a, like a little blog on CaringBridge. Is that the name of it? And I get the notices when he's put new stuff up. And he spends less and less and less time talking about himself and his pain. He'll usually put a little update at the top 
and the rest of it is all about God and all about Christ and all about how God is sustaining him, how he is grateful for every night of two hours of sleep, how he is grateful that his pain went from a 10 to a 6, how he is grateful for God's enduring love for him in the midst of everything he's going through. That's exactly what Paul is describing here where he says, that the very Lord of peace himself will continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Look, none of us, at least I can speak for me, have endured that kind of pain yet. I hope that if I ever have to go through what he's going through, that I have that kind of confidence and peace because that is a confidence and peace that only God can give that the world just doesn't understand. And it comes from the Lord of peace himself, continually granting you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. And then he signs it. We've talked before about Paul's several physical difficulties. I am convinced because of the book of Galatians that Paul was probably losing his eyesight. He even said, look at what big letters I write to you. And he said to the Galatian church, you loved me so much that if it were possible, you would have taken out your own eyes. You would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Well, that makes no sense unless he was having eyesight problems. And so at the end of these letters, Paul would dictate these letters. They were written out by an amanuensis, a secretary, somebody who would write it for him. But at the end of them, he would always sign it with his own hand, his own signature, so that people knew that it really did come from Paul because it was easy to forge a letter in these days, which is why Paul a couple times says, even if you receive a letter as if from us, don't believe it. It had to have Paul's insignia, his mark at the bottom of it. And so in verse 17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter, every actual letter that I write. And this is the way that I write. Peering through his broken eyes, writing with his large letters, he would scrawl something that was always his mark. And then as Paul so frequently does, after giving all that instruction, after laying out all of that theology, after describing all of that intricate eschatology, after all of that, he focuses it on the main topic of all of his teaching and conversation, the main topic of the gospel itself. In the end, it all comes back to one word. It all comes back to grace. It all comes back to your salvation is a result of God being gracious to you, though you don't deserve it. And so Paul opens and closes letters with this phrase, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I cannot imagine a better hope and benediction for you all. If I fall down this week and I never get to talk again, my hope for you all is that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with you all. Because it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the impetus for all the rest of it. Look, I like eschatology. I enjoy eschatology. I'm not afraid to teach it. But if I teach you all the ins and outs of what's going to happen according to the Bible, but I haven't taught you yet about the grace of God that is saving you, that is sustaining you, that is caring for you minute by minute. If I haven't taught you that, I've done you no good whatsoever. The grace of God permeates Paul's writing because it permeates the Bible because it permeates the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. It is all a story of the grace of God being kind to people who simply do not and cannot deserve it. And that really ought to make you grateful. That ought to make you marvel. That ought to make you want to worship that God who could be that 
kind and loving and beneficent to somebody like you. And so I can't say it any better than the grace of God that comes to you through Jesus Christ be with you all. Bye. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.